the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back in the 1970s, people of faith, evangelical Christians, people who were believers in a Judeo-Christian, biblically-based moral code or ethic, were referred to as the silent majority. Well, here we are. Fast forward the clock 40-something years, and we're not so silent anymore, and we are definitely in what appears to be a growing minority. What has happened with this major paradigm shift, where what had once been considered normative and mainstream is now all of a sudden, well, from one end of the continuum, irrelevant to the other, considered extreme, Well, some insights on not just the shift, but also how we who are most impacted by this shift can appropriately and effectively respond to it. We take a look at good faith, being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. Joining me is the president of the Barna Group, a leading research and communications company that I know you're very well familiar with, Dave Kinneman. And David, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. Boy, uh, certainly this election cycle is proving uh, this point to a tremendous degree. Try to have any kind of a civil conversation with people of opposing viewpoints, and you suddenly realize that <laughs> we've made the paradigm shift for what had been, uh, for the most part, 2,000 years of historic Christian faith and mores, and now all of a sudden we're the ones considered the extremists. What's going on? Well, I think there's a lot of cultural changes that are taking place, but I mean, certainly the data bear that out, that a majority of Americans now uh, think that, that that religion as its practice can be part of the problem. So, for example, we find that if you were to share your faith with somebody, 60% of Americans believe that's a socially extremist thing to do. Uh, it's okay if someone came to you and asked about your faith and wanted to find out more, but if you try to actively evangelize somebody to try to talk somebody who wasn't really all that is interested in listening uh, into your faith, then then that's viewed as extremism. So really the way we conclude um, in this project about what's happening is that the the society that we live in is changing its mind about the Christian way of living, and that's evangelism, that's attitudes towards sex and sexuality, that's public expressions of religion. Uh, Christianity is increasingly viewed, as you mentioned, as extremist or as irrelevant, and, and so Christians are really struggling with what to do with that. We are struggling indeed, and of course, at some levels, it's hard to uh, hard not to internalize a lot of this or, or take it uh, tremendously personally. I mean, many of us that are old enough to remember a day and an age when we were kind of in the mainstream and when expressing views, for example, of uh, believing in the moral code, sharing our faith, marital faithfulness, uh, biblical errancy kind of put us in the, in the norm, and all of a sudden now, that's considered to be extremist, and in some camps, uh, things like prohibiting young women from getting an education, forcing them to dress in black and cover their faces in public and even executing people for not believing, that's, that's okay. 
Yeah, well, I think this is, you know, obviously you're speaking about Islam and other countries, but in the United States, what's interesting is that um, Americans are changing their mind around a lot of things. So sex and sexuality, uh, praying for people in public, public expressions of evangelism. And what we find in the research is that a majority of American Christians are feeling very pressured. Uh, in fact, a majority are feeling uh, persecuted. They use that term to describe their faith in culture today. Uh, my co-author of this book, Good Faith, and I are careful not to use the term persecution. But we don't think that that's the way that pe- people in North America are currently. We're not being persecuted in the same way uh, that people around the world are being persecuted, as you mentioned, um, in, in, you know, in, in the Middle East and in other kind of contexts. Christians can face very brutal um, suppression of faith. But in, in the United States, we do think that there is a, a new level of pressure. There's certainly more skeptics, that is, people that are, that are um, you know, skeptical about faith and religion in America. Um, and that's actually the fastest growing, quote-unquote, faith group is people that are religiously unaffiliated. And so I think there's a lot of things that are that are making for a more pressure-filled environment for today's Christians. And among younger Christians, a group of people that we spend a lot of time studying here at Barna, millennials, um, people that are in their teens and young adults, they're, they're telling us that they're often afraid to speak up on behalf of their faith. They're feeling pressured. They're feeling silenced. They're feeling sidelined. And, you know, listen, we actually find good evidence that they're sticking up for their faith, that they're a bright light in the midst of a very dark generation. Generation, but those are perceptions that we have to take stock of, that they're feeling pressure, they're feeling as though their faith doesn't matter in the world. So how do we help to fortify them in their faith? And that's really what we did with this project, was to try to help Christians navigate these very difficult conversations that we're having now about faith and culture, why Christianity still matters, why we can be irrelevant and extreme, and that is actually what Jesus is calling us to be in the very best way possible. Is part of this then ultimately, David, to change up both our perspective on this and the dialogue, because I think at the core, uh, people of faith, Bible believers, those that have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we know the relevancy of the gospel. The problem is that maybe the methodology and manner in which we have communicated that has failed in some respects to keep up with the times, and the world and culture around us has changed and changed very dramatically. Technology has a part, I think, to to play in all of that, and now suddenly we feel kind of like the children of Israel, although here we are living in exile in our own country. Yeah, this theme of exile is a key theme that we bring up in our in our work, um, and I think our research really bears that out. That Christian, you know, Christianity is a ma- still a majority of Americans. People identify as Christian, uh, but the evangelical community is is really only about um, one in ten Americans, depending on how you measure it. And um, and listen, you know, for those of us who are very committed to Scripture and committed to Jesus, that. Um, we're, we're really much more countercultural than we realize, and you know we think we're living in mostly a Christianized country, but that's just not really the case. In fact, what's happening is not just a non-Christian culture; it's a, a it's a it's a selfish and narcissistic culture. And sometimes, frankly, we're as Christians part of that. There's this document this, we document in the book this new rise of the self as the new sort of god of the age, and everyone's sort of looking at themselves as their own sort of spiritual judge and jury. In fact, we found that ninety. One percent of Americans say the best way to find themselves is to look within themselves, and and so that's just very counter to what Scripture tells us that the best way to find ourselves is to discover ourselves in a truth outside of ourselves in Scripture, in Jesus, in the traditions of the church. 
And so uh, to, to find ourselves, you know, we, we really need to look at those those external sources of truth in Jesus. Uh, but mostly our culture is changing its mind and wants to be, uh, you know, kind of its own judge and jury. And so, yeah, that's really part of what we were working on this book to do was to help Christians navigate those really difficult conversations about how to have a countercultural view towards living faithfully today. And, of course, the irony is if you look at a couple of letter, uh, levels, both in terms of sort of the, the, the governmental engagement um, as well as the, the religiosity engagement, uh, this is certainly not a new challenge from Christ's perspective, is it? I mean, he had to contend with not only Rome, but he certainly had to contend with the church of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so in terms of that engagement at that level, uh, no surprise to Jesus. It's just for us, well, this is the first time we've kind of experienced it, at least here in America, isn't it? I think that's exactly right, and I mean, I think it's a it's a it's a great perceptive question because we're dealing with several challenges, many challenges in, in American culture today. One of which is uh, the changing social landscape and the fact that, in a lot of ways, it's not just that the Bible has less authority. Almost every institution has less authority in Americans' lives than it did a decade or two decades ago. The Bible has less authority. The church has less authority. Government has less authority. Media, political leaders. Uh, we're living in a celebrity age, and that's just one indication of the sort of self-centered, narcissistic, god of self kind of world that we live in. But the other problems, really, if we're taking stock of this, is that you know the church is often very self-righteous in its orientation to the world. And if we read scripture carefully, um, we can find that you know one of the bigger problems in in the world isn't just the unrighteousness of society, isn't just the ways in which we're godless as a culture. It's about the ways the church loses its moral path towards righteousness in Christ, not through our own power. And the message of Galatians is this very thing, is that you know you start your, you start your spiritual journey in Jesus, but then you try to perfect it through human effort. And I think that we have to be pretty hard on ourselves when we find that self-righteousness is creeping into our Christian communities. And it happens all the time. Uh, you know, every day, all of us as Christians can, can veer towards self-righteous judgmentalism, which is just as much a problem as the unrighteousness in the world that we're trying to solve. Let's pause on that point. We're going to pick up more of the dialogue on the other side here as we're visiting with David Kinneman. David is the president of the Barna Group, an internationally recognized research and communications company. George Barna has been a guest on this program many times down through the years. David is co-author of a new book called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're irrelevant and extreme. We'll continue our conversation on how to learn and counter all of that as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So how do we deal with, quite frankly, living in an outright hostile culture towards Christians and people of faith in that sense that we have become suddenly, well, frankly, irrelevant and extreme in the views of some? And part of the challenge, of course, here is uh, changing attitudes. And I think perhaps our uh, guest tonight would agree that the most critical attitude regarding such matters that needs to be changed, in fact, the only one that we really ultimately have any control over is our own. David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Group and co-author of Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. Let's talk about attitudes, and particularly those of us, I think, that challenge or feel challenged by all of this, David, and yet um, sometimes take the self-righteous position that, well, they're the ones at fault, not me. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest challenges uh, that people have today in the church. And my dad is a lifelong pastor, has this great line that Jesus is just as concerned about our self-righteousness in the church as he is about the unrighteousness in the world. And I think that's um, that's a very apt statement. And so, um, you know, when you look in the, in the New Testament, uh, Paul is primarily concerned, if not almost exclusively concerned about the faithfulness of the of of the church um you know in revelation where john's writing about uh his his revelation of jesus in the early chapters about the the seven churches in in um in asia minor modern day turkey he basically says you know the, the faithfulness of those seven church bodies in those different communities in philadelphia and pergamum and um you know ephesus that that the faithfulness of those churches is the thing that will change culture uh in so many ways in so many words so i think this is one of the the key things that we tried to do with our project was to, to say to, to christians there's a way to live with good faith even when society thinks that we're irrelevant and extreme um, that there's a way for us to have these difficult conversations when it looks at we're trying to help our, our our kids and our grandkids and our millennial you know teenagers and youth to try to understand what it means to live faithfully that there's there's a way to do this and we we actually think that that we can approach this very challenging contentious culture with joy with Jesus love in our hearts with the uh, truth in, from scripture not not watering down uh, the truth of scripture and so that's really a lot of the things that we were trying to do was to help people have those difficult conversations conversations in their in their churches and in their families part of the challenge here too is we talk about changing the dialogue here changing attitudes and viewpoint i mean historically and i, I think we've seen this over even uh, the last many election cycles where as people of faith have been kind of drawn into the political arena we see much of what needs to be done in terms of uh, resolving moral issues and societal problems is just that they are problems to be solved as opposed to what would be i think uniquely Christ take on all of this, and that is that these are people in need of a Savior. They're, they're, they're people that are walking apart from God that don't know Him personally. They may have problems, to be sure, but the goal here, ultimately, the powerful approach is not going to be to simply try to be problem-focused, but rather relationship-focused, no? Yeah, absolutely. And and we make the argument in the project that, you know, it's not just issues to be solved, but people to be loved. And and we love them. We lead with our love. Love is the preeminent virtue. I think a lot of times Christians worry about loving people too much that it might somehow condone the wrong behaviors or wrong perspectives. Uh, but love never works that way as we read in Scripture. And it doesn't mean that we, um, you know, condone people's behaviors. But there's a certain degree to which, you know, when we understand how love works and how the countercultural truth of Scripture, and I don't want to underestimate that. It's truth and grace. Uh, that that love really is is part of what we're trying to call people to. So in, in the book, we basically make the argument that, that that good faith works when we love people as Jesus does at cost to ourselves. That we trust the countercultural truths of Scripture, and then we live that out by bringing the you know restoration into the brokenness of people's lives. So you know, a lot of times I think people struggle because when we love people well, we're actually trying to restore Restore them to God's original intent as a generous person, as a person of joy and 
faith, um, and and a lot of times uh, their their own brokenness has brought them to a place where they can't really experience that. And so our love through Christ actually helps to restore them to that original intent that Jesus has for them. So it's not becoming wishy-washy when it comes to our morals or what we believe in. In fact, in some respects, it might be strengthening that because one of the big arguments that I often hear from people that are not of faith that say, oh, you Christians, you know, you, you talk a good game, but try to engage in dialogue and you can't even give an articulate reason uh, of what you believe, let alone why you believe it. So it, it's not a matter of, of letting go or compromising our beliefs, but maybe in some ways, David, learning more about them and then being able to, uh, with clarity, as well as a, a sense of, of self-confidence, engage in a non-defensive faction, a fashion and giving reasons for our faith? Absolutely. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of like what caused us to write this book, which I think answers that question that you're you're asking is, you know, we I have a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 11-year-old, two girls and a boy. Uh, my co-author, Gabe Lyons, also has teenagers. We're in our mid-40s or early 40s, 42. And um, giving, I'm aging myself here as we talk. <laughs> I'm 42 years old. And, and, you know, so we kind of thought about, like, what do we do to help our own kids in an era when it's not just enough to have the right answer, you know, like the apologetic, you know, handbook and you kind of look up and it's, you know, here's the answer to that particular theological problem or apologetic question. That's still important, but the question is how do we live and how do we um, understand this very skeptical culture, this exile, this modern day exile that we're kind of living in, and then how do we live that out? And so what motivated us to to write this this book, um, along with the data that we collected on behalf of this project and the problems, the pressure that Christian community is feeling was really our own, our own experience with our kids about trying to give them confidence that Christianity actually does matter. It is, it does answer the questions of a complicated age. Your, you know, their peers, their, their millennial peers who are increasingly living a spiritual, but not Christian life need to understand the importance of Jesus in their lives. And so we were, we were really trying to fortify our own children and to give them uh, confidence that that Christianity is going to matter in their in their lives again for some of those difficult conversations that they are going to face is it important to in your opinion uh, David and based on the research that we that we give the other side a chance to hear them out at least to hear their heart and I ask that question because so often as I've watched uh, a Christian in dialogue with another believer or non-believer that they they seem to be concentrating not on what's being said or the heart of the individual but rather ready to pound with a response or an answer or a counterpoint. Um, and the irony is if you sit down and talk to the average person out there who was not an individual of faith and kind of, I find, dig down into what motivates them, what drives them, that while some of the ultimate opinions that they hold or moral positions that they may have, we might find, uh, you know, in the range from, uh, you know, disappointing to outright disgust, yet oftentimes we, we can find at least some nuggets that, while perhaps misinformed, it, it, at least there's something genuine in there that, that, that maybe we can use as a starting point to engage in dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and it's really one of the purposes for the book was to try to give people an understanding of the heart behind opposing opposing viewpoints behind someone who would have a very different point of view. Uh, to try to understand that you see these individuals as people first, not as arguments to be won or issues to be solved, but as, as we said earlier, as people to be loved. And um, you know, G- Jesus has this incredible countercultural way. I mean, he's the hardest. Uh, the most sort of 
uh, you, you know, um, difficult in his conversations with uh, with religious insiders, and he's the most compassionate towards people who have a very different point of view. Um, you know, towards women, towards sinners, towards individuals who would would seem to be at odds with his you know very message. And um, and I think that's that's so important for us as Christians today is to to realize that um, you know think of the last time someone came to your door and knocked and really persuaded you by uh, you know argumentation about the you know Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or someone who came maybe to evangelize and it's just like we're never persuaded in that way. Um, you know, they're looking for people who aren't really settled in their beliefs. They're looking for people who can be persuaded. And I think sometimes we end up looking at everyone as like a target. And Jesus asks us to be evangelistic, to go and make disciples, but not to go look, you know, to go to target hunting. And I think that's an important distinction to really see the friendships, the heart behind people who disagree, the fact that we can love people, even if they never, dis- uh, never end up agreeing with us in this earthly life. Again, we want to try to pray for them and to talk about you know the, the the truth is Christ and as, as He's changed our own lives, but but again, changing the metric of success from simply getting someone converted uh, to really becoming really deep friends that that you know we're able to say Jesus has changed our life. Could he, could he in, chat, in fact change your life? And even deeper still, oftentimes I think the approach is we're simply trying to win the argument. Um, as opposed to win somebody for Christ or or, or love them uh, in a fashion that while, yes, we know ultimately we, we have a concern for their soul, and yet uh, first and foremost uh, to demonstrate uh, the love that God showed for us so we understand, uh, to a degree at least, the amazing thing that has been done that through Christ's work on the cross we might be forgiven. And so empowered with that knowledge and understanding to go and to do and, and as David points out, not to see people as problems that need to be solved, but rather as people to be loved. And some wonderful insights inside the pages of this new book. Again, the book newly published by Baker. You'll find it at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it online. Go to simply goodfaithbook.org. That's goodfaithbook.org. O-R-G. And our thanks to David Kinneman, the author of this book and president of the Barna Group, for being with us tonight. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Take a look around you. Be it the events taking place in the front pages of the newspapers every day or maybe what's going on in your own community, in your own home. We seem to be filled with nothing but turmoil. Couples fighting and divorcing, children acting out, violence spilling out into the streets. All related, if you think about it, to one common core issue. The one thing that so many of these troubling events in society in general or in your home in specific that seem to have in common, and that is anger. The Bible reminds us to be angry but sin not. But what exactly does that mean? How can we identify the source of our anger and then learn how to surrender it to God as opposed to simply surrendering to anger, which seems to be for most of us a much easier path? We're joined now by June Hunt. A delight to have you on the program. Great to be with you, Craig. Thank you. Boy, this issue of anger, it doesn't seem as if we have to look very far. It spills out into the front pages of the newspaper every single day day and sadly many american homes are are almost consumed like a fire by it anger but what is this this source of anger how do we go about identifying what anger is where it's coming from so that we can learn how to how to control it as opposed to it controlling us 
great question. And by the way, nobody wants to be controlled by something else, especially when it can cause a horrible reaction from others. But anger is a strong emotion of, of irritation or agitation that occurs when a need or expectation is not met. And yet what we have to realize, okay, we have at times anger, because as you already said, the Bible says, be angry, but do not sin. So this is a part of the problem. Uh, many people, in fact, if I were to um, ask a, a large group, how many of you believe that uh, anger is a sin? Many hands would go up. But yet, would God give us the ability and give us uh, uh, the command, uh, be angry but do not sin, if anger was always sinful? Obviously, the answer is no. So that's why it's important to figure out what on earth to do because there's a caution, Proverbs 29:22. You know, the book of wisdom is Proverbs. And the Bible says, an angry man stirs up dissension, and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. So there's a difference between feeling anger versus being an angry person. So it's a legitimate feeling, and we see cases throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament, of, of examples where God was angry, or, or even Jesus, I think, of the, the scene of him overturning the money changers' tables yeah. there in the temple. Certainly there was a, an example of Christ being angry, and yet I guess it's not so much that we experience the emotion of being angry, but what do we do with it? How do we respond to it? How do we control it or allow it, in some cases, to control us? You go into great depth in their new book called The Answer to Anger, newly published by Harvest House, The Practical Steps to Temper Fiery Emotions. And I guess that that business of tempering the emotions begins, as you suggested, by identifying some of the sources of anger, the reasons why there is that emotion kind of bubbling up with us in, in the first place. That's huge. Uh, and I'm glad you're pinpointing that, Craig, because if you don't understand the source, then just saying or hearing the words, you know, don't be angry or I shouldn't be angry, it's not going to help. Uh, that's not a solution. Actually, think of it this way. Anger is purely a secondary response to one or more sources. It's either caused the anger is caused by hurt, injustice, fear, frustration. Mm. One of those four or a combination of the, the four. In fact, what I would say, at times we will read about road rage. And uh, it's like if you were driving in your car and all of a sudden you think, oh, here's my cutoff. And you just, you know, you, you, you squeeze in but between two cars and, and you make your, your exit. Well, you know, within 60 seconds, you could be dead. If the person behind you has road rage, it's not personal. It's not like somebody's upset with you as a person for what you did last week. You could be dead because of unresolved anger. And here's your key, unresolved anger that is cause, has been caused by hurt, injustice, fear, or frustration, or 
again, the combination. I've heard people describe it this way, that that sometimes there is this sense of almost a well of anger. It seems as if um, they will get upset over seemingly nothing or will seem to react to disconnected scenarios. You know, the guy who has a tough day at the office, maybe got into a fight with the boss, lost a big contract, comes home at night, and now he's, you know, kicking the cat and abusive to the wife and abusive to the kids. Right. There's there's an obvious disconnect there. Is part of the problem, June, that we've spent a lot of time looking at the symptoms as opposed to understanding the root cause or these, these four sources of anger that you identify in your new book, The Answer to Anger? Yeah, exactly. Those events currently can have nothing to do with the past. So I, I think it's valuable to look at past anger, which I would call unresolved, really it's unresolved past anger versus present anger. Uh, so I think an issue is to understand these four sources. Every time we have anger, what what is the cause? Is it hurt? Has somebody really hurt my feelings? Is it um, instead injustice? It may not be personal at all. You can see a child, in fact, I, this happened one time when I saw a, a mother say to a little son, if you don't hurry up, this is exiting out of a, out of a store, if you don't hurry up, I'm going to chop off your legs. Mm. Well, let me tell you, it, I was a youth director at the time, and it welled up within me. I followed the woman to the door of the business, and this little child, this little boy, had a look of terror in his eyes, and he was scurrying as fast as his little legs could carry him. And I said, excuse me, ma'am, I happen to be a youth director, and I just want to say, you may not be aware, but children take words literally, and he could literally think you are going to chop off his legs. She was so stunned that I would say anything to her. But, you know, it was the injustice of what she said that propelled me to action. In fact, let let me pop in this. The point of us having anger is like a red light on the dashboard of your car. Do I assume that you may own a car of some vehicle? Absolutely. Okay. Do you ever have a light appear that normally isn't there? And it's an indicator light? Sure, and we know it's an indication of trouble of some sort. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. And the intent of that red light is not to just shine like a Christmas tree ornament or Christmas tree light. The point of that indicator light is to propel you to action. Mm. So that when you see that on the dashboard of your car, it's to propel you to action to to, to fix it because there's something wrong. It, and, and all it may need is water in the radiator. Or it could be some engine problem and it could cause fire. I mean, it's, it, it, it could be extremely important to act on it to figure out what is causing this. So uh, the red light on the dashboard of the car is good. So anger is intended to be good to say something's wrong. Now, in candor you know if i'm jealous because my friend that i love dearly is now going to have lunch with an, her new friend then i'm the one who needs to rethink this and say something is wrong but it may be that i need to deal with my jealousy you know what it, I, because people can have multiple friends and should have multiple friends like jesus did 
So, so in other words, it, it may not be just somebody out there that's doing something wrong. It may be that something that I'm interpreting things wrong within my heart. I'm the one that needs to change. Here's an ideal spot to pause. We'll come back to more of our conversation on this edition of Lifeline. June Hunt is with us. The broadcast, Hope for the Heart, weekday afternoons at 2 p.m. right here on KFAX. We're talking about June's latest book, The Answer to Anger. Back with more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. June Hunt is on the line with us today. Of course, she is host of Hope for the Heart, heard weekday afternoons at 2 p.m. here on KFAX. And she also has a call-in counseling program called Hope in the Night, which is broadcast at midnight right here on KFAX. And June, to put this in perspective for listeners, let's go back to your example for a moment of the indicator light. You're right, that light can go off, and it can be something as simple as you're low on water in the radiator, so you pull into a service station, you top off the radiator water, and you go about your business. But if that warning light is ignored for a long time, or in this example, if we allow that anger to compel us, to control us, to drive us at every moment, uh, much like the warning light over something minuscule, such as low water in the radiator, after a time, can't that turn into a more significant or severe situation, meaning we don't pay attention to the warning light now, the radiator runs dry, the engine overheats, the block cracks, now it goes from a quick stop at the service station for a little bit of free water to a $3,000 engine job. Is the same thing true then in that example when it comes to anger, that if we continuously ignore that warning light and we don't deal with the hurt or the injustice or the fear or, or the frustration that could go back weeks or months or years that over time that can fester and go from a need for water to a need for an entire new engine block? Uh, you've just connected the dots beautifully because so often what we are experiencing today as a problem or we could have a loved one, you know, somebody we really care about who just has this anger problem who either blows up or just stays you know, like a simmering stew, just that simmering anger. Um, and, and yet it's going to ruin relationships. This is, this is sometimes a cause of, of divorce, of, of parting, of people not speaking to family members for years because of not dealing with anger in a healthy way. Let's just imagine right now, you're angry, uh, this is simplistic, understand, but it works in, in many, many situations, because I've used this. Um, imagine right now, you're just annoyed. I mean, you just it's just irritating because there's that squeaky door. It's the squeaky front door. It just keeps squeaking, and, and, and you know... Every time you hear it, you're trying to watch some kind of a program. You're a good student of the news, and so you're trying to absorb this. And then you hear hear this, uh, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's just bothersome. Okay, now, you actually want to ask yourself this question. Number one, can I fix it? The, the, the quick answer to anger is only two steps. It's a question and an action. The question is, can I change it? Can I change it? If you can change it, you change it. If you can't, you release it. So if you have a squeaky door, what do you do, Craig? 
get out the can of three in one oil and <laughs> or WD forty. WD forty. You put oil on those hinges. If you can fix it, you fix it. If the if the faucet is leaking, you get a wrench and you tighten it. Okay, or ask somebody to help you do something that actually is relatively easy. So if you can fix it, you fix it. If you can't, you release it. For example. If you've just lost the dearest person in your life and you are hurt, you you feel pain, you feel, oh, this seems so unjust. I wanted more time. Well, you can't fix that one. You You can't bring somebody back to life. So at that point, you release it and you say, Lord, I... I feel this pain. I just hate being without this person who's been so dear to me for so long. And I just release my pain to you. I thank you that I can entrust the future to you and even my present, even in the midst of my pain. Thank you for understanding and thank you for being as a source to give me a peace that passes all understanding. And that's what he promises. He, he promises that he will give us a peace that passes all understanding because, of course, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And when we've humbled our hearts and received Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, he comes in and he is peace for us even when we don't have peace within our own hearts. At the end of the day, that anger that you're experiencing, or maybe you're on the receiving end of because you're living with someone in your home, Uh, maybe you work with someone who is constantly demonstrating levels of anger. That's the warning light on the dashboard, as June Hunt says, that ought to compel us to say there's something wrong. We need to take a serious introspection look at what the source of that anger is. As June points out, it could be a past hurt or an injustice. It could be response to a situation that made you fearful or made you frustrated. To address those issues, to learn then on how to recognize the anger from the past keep it in the past, and realize that you don't have to be controlled by the past. Ultimately, to, as Scripture encourages us, to be angry because it is a natural emotion, and yet sin not and not allow it to control your life or negatively impact the lives of those around you. We'll find all the details inside of this new book called The Answer to Anger, Practical Steps to Temper Fiery Emotions, newly published by Harvest House. You can get it through, of course, the website. You can go directly to uh, hopefortheheart.org and order it that way. The broadcast, by the way, um, newly installed here on KFAX weekday afternoons at 2 p.m. And, June, we are so delighted to have your insights and your wisdom um, every day here on KFAX, in addition, of course, to the evening broadcast I hope in the night at midnight, uh, the daily broadcast of Hope for the Heart is such a thrill to have you on. It'll be a joy to be with you in the afternoons at 2. Could I address one thing that you said, and that is when someone is angry toward you, and if they are abusive toward you, what to do? Could I just please, please? Because so many people think, oh, well, I have no choice. I just have to submit. I have to submit. Well, the Bible says, and that's what I want to say, is look at the whole counsel of God. Since we're talking about anger, 
look at what the whole counsel of God says. For example, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-four says, Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered. So you have the right to move out of harm's way. If someone is being continually demeaning, uh, who, who is angry at you and keeps exploding toward you, that is not healthy. In fact, you say, okay, it is biblical, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-four, for me to move away from that kind of person. You put a boundary up and you explain to this other person, even though this can be very uncomfortable, but you can learn to do this and we can teach you how to do this. Also, you say, oh, but, but isn't that kind of punitive or something? The Bible says in Proverbs nineteen nineteen, a hot-tempered man must pay the penalty. If you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. In other words, it won't do any good excusing this kind of behavior. So since you brought up the issue of somebody basically exploding, you know, being angry toward you repetitively as a pattern of life, don't, don't be around that kind of person find a way to move away move out of harm's way move um where you once it starts you make a, a decision uh just say i think things are getting heated i'm going to take a walk and you go outside you walk around the house around the block you uh take a car you drive you do something to separate yourself because it is not god's will that you be anybody's emotional punching bag or physical punching bag. Some great insights in dealing with the issue of anger. The Answer to Anger, published by Harvest House, the book available through Hope for the Heart on the web at hopefortheheart.org. The broadcast, of course, weekday afternoons at 2 p.m. right here on KFAX. Hope in the Night, heard midnight right here on AM 1100 KFAX. And June is always a delight to have you on the program. Thanks for the visit. My joy. Good to be with you. Look forward to the future. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.